Welcome to Connection. Glad you are here this morning. If you're gathering your coffee for the last, at the last minute, you can do that. Come on in, have a seat. We're doing things a little differently this morning, so you're going to be all thrown off, but that's okay because my whole morning has felt like that. So we will just take some time to worship Jesus this morning and be centered there. Um, so glad you are here, as Will normally tells you. There are connection cards on your chair. We would love for you to fill those out. If you provide a, an email address that I can read, you will get email updates from the church. If your handwriting is not, then you won't, or somebody else will get your emails. Um, that's how that works. But if you'll fill those out, and then you can drop those in boxes on the way out of either door, um, and we'll have that information. There's also a place on there where you can put prayer requests. I see those and pray for those, and I will pass those to a prayer chain if you want me to. So if you just say, hey, you know, if you don't say pass it along, I'll just kind of keep it and be in prayer for you that way. So we're going to lead out this morning with a call to worship, a responsive reading call to worship of Psalm 145. All right, and so the way that works is I will read a little bit, and then you'll read the second part, the bolder part. I want this numbered for you on the screen. So I'll read one, you read two, or whatever, how that works. But we do call, we do responsive readings. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It mimics the pattern of the gospel. God calls us, and we respond. And so when we do a responsive reading, it's not just, oh, let's read some scripture together. We are practicing the rhythm of the gospel. And so that's an incredible little piece to realize that when we're just reading some scripture, we're living the gospel pattern. All right, so let's read Psalm 145 together. I will worship you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is beyond our comprehension. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As your children, we shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And in our faithful works, we shall glorify you. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Amen. So, if you have not been with us for a little while, we, have, we are in a series walking through the book of James. And yes, if you've been participating in the adult Bible study, we're studying that on Wednesday nights as well. So there's your plug, and then you get the sermon version on Sunday morning, a couple weeks behind. But that's fun. So I get to expound on James a little bit. We get to talk about it. Last week we talked about desire. And we talked about the importance of desire and how central it is to our life and how James was worried about what his people that he was writing to were worried about. This week, we're going to talk about blatant versus hidden sin a little bit. Now, if you're wondering why I'm already preaching, let me take a pause and time out and tell you. I told you we were doing things a little different. I'm going to share from James, and then we're going to spend the remainder of time in concentrated and focused worship. All right, the band will be up here to sing for a while. We'll be able to sink into that and worship together this morning. So we're just flipping the script a little bit. All right, 
Didn't tell you that at the outset. I told you that once I led into James, but there you go. So we're going to talk about hidden versus blatant sin. Now, we all tend to think, hey, I'm a pretty good person. Right? And nobody wakes up and goes, I'm looking to be evil today. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Nobody does that unless you're like a supervillain or something. But nobody just tries to figure this stuff out. We tend to think, hey, I'm pretty good. I know I mess up sometimes, but in general, I'm pretty good. And sometimes when we think about our day, we may even think, hey, I really didn't mess it up today. I did okay. But the reality is sometimes we sin without even really knowing it. You know, this summer we did the Ten Commandments, and those are the more blatant and obvious sins. Thou shalt not, you know. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. And so when you lay in bed at night and you go, well, I didn't steal anything today. You can feel pretty good about yourself, right? What about lying, though? I mean, I won't go back to the Ten Commandments series again, but when your spouse asks you about the outfit, you know what I mean? Or, or there's other, or some other little lie that crept in there. Maybe you did it without even thinking about it. You just did it. Why did I lie about that? I don't even know. But those are still, as you think through your day, a little more obvious, a little more on the nose. You can go, okay, clearly I broke that one today. And we talked about some of the complexities of those this summer and the fact that sometimes you break them and you don't even realize you broke them, right? Because you say, don't kill. I haven't murdered anybody, I hope. But hate, Jesus taught us, was the same as murder. So it's more subtle than that. The sins are more subtle than that. So James has written these pastoral concerns in this letter. And, it, and as we study the book of James, it really is more of a pastoral letter than you realize. We talk about it being kind of a wisdom letter, but James is giving us all kinds of loaded pastoral advice. In fact, the passage we're going to study today can be a little hard to hear because when we put it in our own context, he's writing to some poor Christians in the first century, and we're wealthy Americans. And when you read this passage, you go, oh, I didn't even realize that was an issue. It can be kind of tough. But he's making an appeal to genuine faith. His pastoral concern is that the people that he's writing to would demonstrate their faith in a genuine way. Not just have faith, but demonstrate it. It's one of the famous parts of his passage. We'll talk about this next week, but this idea that you say you have faith, but show me how you, ha how you have faith through the way that you live and through your works. And so one of his concerns is making sure that we have a genuine faith. And so the passage we're going to read today, he goes against favoritism. We'll get to that one in a minute. But he also talks about faith without works not having value. But that's more depth for next week. So we're going to focus on the first 13 verses of chapter 2 today. So if you want to read those with me, we'll do that. Hebrews. If you're wondering where James is, it's right after Hebrews and before Peter in the New Testament. All right, that gave me time to find it. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold, with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes comes in, and if you take notice of the one in the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has, God, has not God chosen the poor in the world 
to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act to those to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment that will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, James. Wow. Right? So part of the way James's letter is structured is he will start into a passage with sort of a rhetorical question. He'll ask a question at the outset, and the way it's worded, it's a, it's a rhetorical because it's an implied command. So have you demonstrated your, are you demonstrating your faith if you show favoritism? Rhetorical question. The opposite is implied. If you are showing favoritism, you are not demonstrating your faith. And he goes into why. Now, I, didn't, I don't know about you, when I talk about hidden versus blatant sins, I didn't know favoritism was in the commandments. Have you thought about that? Like, we all have a favorite team still, I hope. Right? But favoritism is in the commandments, believe it or not. He says, when you show favoritism, are you really demonstrating your faith? My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? And then he sends the next few passages talking about the folly of that favoritism. Like, why is it wrong to, be, to play favorites? And he talks about rich and poor. People dressed in fine clothes and somebody who's obviously poor. And he talks about how they're treated in this context. This context was in worship. So when the rich person with the fine clothes comes in, you give him a preferred seat and you tell the poor person, stand over there. Or it even says, or sit at my feet. That's a, that's a derogatory phrase. Like, you get the lowest spot in the room. Because in the first century, believe it or not, they didn't have Nike. <laughs> right? They're walking around in sandals, or they're walking around barefooted, and the ro roads are not paved. The roads are dirty. And so when you entered somebody's home, your feet were nasty. And so to tell somebody, sit at my feet, is not just sit in a low station, it's like, it's almost like kiss my feet, kind of, it's, it's derogatory, it's negative, it's nasty. And this is, he's calling them out in the way they were treating people in church. Wait, they're being, they're discounting people who are obviously poor because they're obviously poor in the way that they dress in church and tell them to sit at my feet. You know, because Christians are always kind, gracious, loving, and supportive 100% of the time, right? Things have so changed so much that we're always gracious, we're always kind, we're always compassionate. We don't show favoritism to people with money today, right? We don't show preference to people that are like celebrity 
or athlete or musician or the person that we just know at church has tons of money, they get no preferential treatment whatsoever, right? I'm asking it rhetorically now too, right? But why is that, how is that, how is that a sin? How is showing favorites a sin? Obviously being derogatory about the sit at my feet is sinful, but how is, hey, come sit right here? Because he says you're casting judgment. You're casting judgment. To show preferential treatment to somebody because of their outward appearance is to judge them based on their outward appearance. It's not just, hey, here's the nice seat. It is treating them differently because they have a perceived status. Now, Jesus, I think I told you all the first week, this book was probably written by the half-brother of Jesus, James, right? He grew up with Jesus, I made the joke the first week, like, would you like to be Jesus' little brother? Can you not be like your older brother? Right? That would be a challenge. To be like Jesus. Wait, that's what we're supposed to do. But can you imagine being compared to Jesus as a brother? It'd be tough. But because he hung out with Jesus so much, when you read this passage of James, it starts to sound like he has been hanging out with Jesus. He says, for the first, he says things like, the poor will be spiritually rich. And the rich, it won't, the riches won't last. That sounds a little bit like Jesus, doesn't it? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Those who have, you have mercy on, God will have mercy on you. Some of those words are in this passage. And so it's clear that James has hung out with his brother through it all. But for him, a f- faith is a commitment of action, not just acknowledgement of truth. You know, the first verse, that rhetorical question says, do you really believe if you show favoritism? This doesn't mean, do you really have faith in Jesus if you show favoritism? Because for him, faith is, I'm committed. If I have faith in it, I'm committed toward it. It's more than just an intellectual assent about who Jesus is, and he certainly knew who Jesus was as his brother, but it's it's more than an intellectual ascent. It's a commitment with the way that you live. And so his pastoral concern is to go, why would you show this standard? By the standard which you judge others, you will be judged type of language. He's saying, hey, this is going to come back on you. Also, why, why is it judgment or why is it a lack of faith to show favoritism? Look at verses 2 through 4 again with me. For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please, while to the other you say, Stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Two things. One, which you need to understand in this context, is the Jews believed that if you were Bill Gates, God had blessed you. If you had great wealth, that was a sign that you were faithful to God. And if you were poor, or if you were blind, or if you were diseased in some way, that was an indication that somebody had sinned. There's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus is about to heal a blind man, and the disciples ask him, who sinned that this man is blind? Who sinned that this guy is blind? Whose fault is it? What egregious sin caused this man's blindness? Well, the inverse was true. They thought Abraham's wealthy. They thought so-and-so was wealthy. Then God must be blessing them because of their faith. 
And James flips that on its head and says, it's the poor who will, be, who will inherit the kingdom. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not the wealthy who drag you into court? Who is the real spiritual person here? The one who is poor and needs God or the one who has great wealth and can solve their problems themselves in court? Who did Jesus rail against when he's walking in his ministry? Those who were wealthy and spiritual and Pharisees and top of the social chain? Or did he rail against prostitutes and tax collectors? When you read the Gospels, he hung out with the poor and the dirty and the ones that are not receiving preferential treatment. And he called on the carpet the rich. He told a rich young ruler, hey, you only have one thing left to do. Give up all your money and come follow me. And that passage, the rich young ruler walks away sad because it says he had great wealth. So for the rich, and by the way, if you live in North America and have a couple of televisions and a screen, you're rich. Right? When you're rich, you don't need God as much. When you can solve your problems with your wealth, you don't need God as much. And that doesn't mean it's a sin to be rich. It means it's a potential trap that you will place your faith in that, in possession and in wealth instead of God. And so one of the ways that folly, the folly of favoritism plays out is this. We're, showing, we're placing our faith, we're honoring those who are wealthy in our worship service, this context. Who are they really placing their faith in? God or the person they know is going to tithe really well? Where are they placing their faith? The people who are showing the preferential treatment. They're judging, hey, he's got money, so when the plate goes around, our budget will grow. Where's their faith? That person over there clearly doesn't have money. Give them the cheap seat so they don't mess it up for the rich, nice, clean people. They're not going to give anyway. Where's their faith? So not only is it judgmental, external, by the way, that passage talks about how they were dressed. What if the rich dude walked in in rags and they were mistaken? Like they're judging it based on externals here. And they're also relying on money, not on God. Money's not evil. It's a question of where you place your faith. Those of us who treat people with money better are doing exactly what James is railing against in this passage. I told you, this is not a fun passage. We're, we've all got some money. And I'm sure at some point we've all been like, hey, they can really take care of me and give me a good job and a good career. I'm going to treat them nice. We've all done it. But favoritism is not one of those... Let's see, I'm going through the Ten Commandments to see if I'm a good person today. Favoritism doesn't show up on the list. It's a subtle one. It's an attitude of heart toward others that's wrong. James has told us so, but it just kind of creeps into our world. We don't even realize that's what we're doing. That we're looking at other people and judging who they are and how they are and what they're doing and where they're and we place our faith in stuff because we can see it and we can touch it and we know it's there and we know it's you know, when you're trying to make payroll and the money's there, you're comfortable and you're safe. When it's not, you're more anxious. Understandably. But where is faith in the middle of that? But it's not just in their hearts. It's not that the people that James is writing to is talking about the fact you've got judgmental attitude. It's not just that. That's bad enough. 
or at least that's something, it's an attitude of the heart that you can work on. He's condemning the fact they're showing it in their actions by giving the preferential seat and telling the other ones to sit at their feet. They don't just have the judgmental attitude about wealth. They're actually executing it in church on that day. They're demonstrating where their heart really is in the way they treat these two different groups of people. And I guarantee you as a pastor, James writing this letter, what's he worried about? He's worried that this will divide the church. You'll have the rich section and the poor section, two different churches under the same church. And this group over here might, not you guys, but this group over here might say something like, at least I'm not like them. Sound familiar? Pharisee's prayer about the tax collector. God, thank you for blessing me. At least I'm not like that guy. It's the same attitude of judgment being played out. It's the same one. And James says, I don't think that's how Christians are supposed to live. But why would the poor be considered rich in faith? God chose the poor to be rich in faith, just as he chose lowly Israel to be faithful among the nations. Think about that for a second. Why did God choose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those guys? Why did he call Israel to be his chosen people? You ever thought about that? Like, why Israel? If we were writing the script, wouldn't you have chosen Rome? They control the whole world. They can tell people what to believe, and they can enforce it. Why would you choose little bitty, backwater, small group of people under the oppression of every empire who comes along to be your chosen people? To demonstrate it's not about their nation's power. It's about what God can do with a group of people who are demonstrating their faith in Christ. If he can do that with Israel, what can he do with the rest of the world? If he can do that with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or should we go through their resumes? David the adulterer, Paul the murderer, Abraham made all kinds of bad calls, almost sacrificed his kid, and that's who God uses to transform the world. If he can do that with them, he can do it with us. So he chooses little Israel to demonstrate that it's not about the country, it's about, the, it's about our God who, and what he can do with that group of people that would demonstrate what they really believe and what their commitment is. The other reason that favoritism is such a big deal is it is contrary to the character of God. Look at verse 8. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted as, by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who, to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy for anyone who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. If partiality, if favoritism, if judging somebody based on their outer appearance is a sin, 
then we can thank God that God is not that way. That if God just looks at you and goes, yeah, no chance. That's not his character though, right? He loves us so much he sends Jesus. Why? Because he knows good appearance or bad appearance, we can't do it. He knows. And so he knows he has to do it for us because it's not about the little country being great. It's not about us being great. It's about his love and his action through us. And so he looks at us and goes, watch what I can do with him. And so when the person who has been off the beaten path for a long time, who has been caught up in sin for a long time, finally says to God, I'm ready to do something different. Let's go. Then God goes, now I get to get to work. Let's roll. Watch what I can do with this faithful and committed heart. Not watch what I can do with this perfect super athlete who's wealthy. Not that he can't do it with perfect super athletes if you're out there. But not not because of their wealth or their athletic ability or their brain power or any of those things, but because God's going to do what God's going to do with us. And all he's looking for is a faithful commitment. The royal law mentioned in the passage is the law of God. It is the Ten Commandments. Then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the guiding principle for how we treat others. So not only does judging for the sake of judging on external appearances, not what God does with us, but judgment violates that particular law, that guiding principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not judge your neighbor, but love your neighbor. Even the ones that don't look like you, act like you, have the same status as you, who are hard to love, love them anyway is the guiding principle. You don't get to choose. And then the second half of this, you don't get to pick and choose which rule you're going to follow. Do you notice that? He starts, he starts in on the Ten Commandments again. He says, the royal law is how we live. The guiding principle is love your neighbor as yourself. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. You know, that's not good to other people. <laughs> right? That's not how you love other people, by committing adultery or murder. But he says, if you break one piece, man, this is one of the toughest passages of Scripture. Remember, I started this thinking, hey, sometimes we think about our life and we go, things are okay. Things aren't a pretty good person. Then James comes in with, if you break one, you've broken them all. Unless you were perfect today, you've broken all ten of the commandments. If you've shown favoritism, you've broken them all. If, you've murdered, if you didn't murder, but you committed adultery, you've also murdered in that sense. You're guilty, is what he says. But we have a God who doesn't judge us based on our ability to keep the law anymore. We have a God who loves us because Christ kept and fulfilled the law perfectly. Which is why verse 13, if he started with a rhetorical question about an implied way of living, he lands with, almost, with, a, with a proverb in verse 13. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's true for how we treat others, but it's the gospel message for us. God's mercy, if we are faithful, if we love God, if we consider ourselves a follower of Jesus, if we've submitted our lives and our control and our heart and our desire to Christ, then mercy triumphs over judgment. Because we don't deserve 
That's what mercy is. That's what grace is, right? It's not something we deserve or something we've earned. It's something God freely bestows because that's what He wants to do. And He does it because Jesus made it possible. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. Favoritism can creep in. Other sins can creep in. But at the end of the day, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time with the worship team and with God and in His presence the rest of this morning. So let's do that. Let's pray. God, thank You for this time. Thank You for these difficult words from James. Because, God, we sometimes rely on our own ability. We sometimes rely on our own wealth. We sometimes rely on our own intellect instead of You. And for that, we repent. Not repent of possessions, but repent of loving possessions more than You. But most of all, we repent of not treating others the way You would have us treat them. May Your mercy triumph in our life so that we can go and display that mercy to others as we love them. In your precious Son's name, amen.